Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another week from our great state. We have our full panel with us today, which means Claire Zauke is with us. Claire is our Healthcare Director here at Citizen Action. Claire, good to have you this morning. Thank you. Good to see you all over Zoom. Yeah, and folks, by the time you probably listen to this, the temperatures are rising. We got 70 degrees this weekend. Spring has hit Wisconsin. That's always great. And Robert Craig loves spring because that means his running in the morning is in a much better weather. Robert Craig, our executive director, is with us. Robert, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing well. So everyone be safe, our, both our digital and our radio audience. Yes, and uh, Robert is uh, just recovering from his second Moderna shot and appears to have made it through uh, healthy and with us today. He's not wiped out, so we're happy, happy to have you, Robert. But um, let's, let's talk about what we got, uh, what we got on docket today. Um, first, we are going to have two guests with us later in the show, Eric Marsh. He is going to join us to talk about all the efforts that are starting to flower all over Wisconsin around marijuana reform, and certainly this is in the context of Governor Evers putting full legalization in the budget. We will talk to Eric about the exciting activity around that in our state. Also, Karen Kirsch, our Healthcare for All Organizing Co-op Director, will be joining us to tell us about a very exciting new weekly Zoom show that she's going to debut next week, talking about healthcare. We'll have Karen on later, but we are going to spend the start of our show talking about the big stuff that just keeps rolling out the federal level. Uh, from our president, uh, Joe, Bi- Joe Biden. Uh, we record Thursday mornings, and as of last night, the president spoke to Congress uh, about 100 days in and really unveiled the American Family Plan, which, let's just say it, it continues along this pattern of Biden making, putting out plans that make historic investments. And I and, uh, want to get the panels, uh, first their thoughts about this new American family plan. And obviously you can put it in the broader context of the speech, uh, but also uh, just talk about the idea that this, again, this, this remains a continued sort of progress of Joe Biden sort of leaning in to looking towards government solutions to help solve our biggest problems. Claire, I'm sure you were glued to the TV last night watching the uh, president's speech. Your thoughts, Claire, on this, uh, Another next big proposal from uh, the president. I am really excited about the American Families Plan. I, I actually got a little bit emotional yesterday when I was reading uh, the summary memo of all the different provisions that are in the plan. And uh, I, c- I couldn't really figure out why I was getting emotional. And, and I think it's because... You know, the first several plans that the president put out were really important and needed as far as addressing COVID and, um, uh, you know, trying to really jumpstart the economy and invest in people's health to get us through the pandemic and bring us out of the Trump years. Uh, But this plan feels like the plan where we are investing in the American people themselves. And there are so many things in here that people have fought for for a long time, especially, and, and I'll speak from my experiences as a woman, um, especially for uh, supporting uh, women and children. And I, I you know, I, I really got a little bit choked up reading about the paid leave, especially um, provisions of the American family plan. 
um, talking about um, the creation of a brand new national family uh, paid family and medical leave program. You know, the United States as a country is is really off on an island by itself as a country that doesn't have something like like a guaranteed maternity and paternity leave. And to see it written in writing that that this is going to be proposed and that and that it's a strong benefit really was emotional for me because I I thought about um, you know all the women who have to go back to work within two weeks of giving birth before their bodies are even healed. And then I read the description more and I and I saw that um, people could qualify for this leave if they're caring for um, not just their own health, but for a loved one. Uh, and, and so, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of family caregivers in this program. And so, again, seeing that in writing in this proposal was amazing. And then I kept reading and reading and it specifically called out giving people time to escape from domestic violence situations to recover from assault. I, I mean, to see those things in writing written out just showed how much care the president and his policy advisors had when thinking through all of the situations and details in which people would need support when building this plan. It was just, it was so comprehensive and so thoughtful, that just the tiniest details that, you know, I was, I was overcome, I, I was really happy. You're absolutely accurate to point out that this plan has a number of things that have, quite frankly, progressives and many Democrats have been pushing for a long time and actually has issues that are bipartisan that speak to working families. Robert, your thoughts on uh, the American uh, family plan? Yeah, I want to concur with you and Claire that we need to take into account all of the organizing, all of the activism that made these issues in the first place. It's not like President Biden and his team invented this. This was an agenda that has been pushed for for a long time in the wilderness with administration of both parties that were still working within a conservative framework. And, and Robert, he, just to, to put a point on that, like groups like nine to five, tons of groups have been laying the foundation mm -hmm. for this work. It's excellent. I'm really glad you pointed that out. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, taking a step back, this is as big an attempted revolution as the Reagan revolution, which actually starts before Ronald Reagan as president. And so this is a paradigm shift. This is very much the idea that we will do great things again and that, we, and that our national government is our democracy and it is there to empower average people and to create shared prosperity. And we've been out of that mode uh, for so long now, it's going to be very hard to enact, but there have really only been previously three major structural reform presidencies that were progressive. Uh, and that was uh, Wilson, F. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Lyndon Baines Johnson. And Biden is trying to be the fourth. And this is my fondest hope that he was a relational politician who would adapt to the times. And his previous record had to do with adapting to a conservative era. And he's bearing that out. But all the progressives and what they've done in Congress and the importance of progressives in these elections, that forced Biden and the moderate wing of the party into a full coalition with progressives like we haven't seen in 50 years. And that is part of what's going on. And progressives will get to it or pushing harder because 
as bold as it is, as much of the establishment is saying, this is impossible. Look what it costs. Oh, it's not going to pass because blah, blah, blah. Because um, gone, he's gone to the left of the uh, Washington establishment. And many of the pundits, even the ones on allegedly left-leaning channels on cable, are saying, oh, I don't know about, uh, about you know, taxing people who owe over $400,000 a year. Yeah, well, an, as MSNBC host makes over that. And by the way, if you make $450,000 a year, you pay her rate in the last 50000 so get real, folks. The first 400 would be on the earlier rate. But the way it's paid for is also very popular, and it's about making those who do well in the society and big corporations start to pay their fair share again. And it's only a start. Robert, really, what you mentioned there is super important. This is going to be very popular. This is going to be popular with in, within parts of the Republican base. It's going to be popular with independents. Oh. It's going to be popular with a lot of folks that quite frankly, Democrats have been struggling with to speak to. And I think that's extraordinarily powerful. And the other thing, and I want to get both of your thoughts, your thoughts. Quickly and and on let it. me just say one yeah, something yeah. on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Monmouth poll is out. This is Thursday morning and 75% support. Now this is before Blitzkrieg against it, but it's what you said. And by the way, a lot, some of the mainline pundits on CNN and MSNBC were doubting it would be popular before the first poll came out because they're in their own bubble and that's one of the barriers is all of the cold water being poured on it uh, at the beginning when, in fact, uh, you know, frankly, not only is, can you pay for it very easily, it is an investment that creates more growth. People don't get it. Giving rich people does not do that or to corporations that just expatriate the money overseas. Robert, I think the people get it. And that's why it's popular. This look. One of the most impressive things about Biden's speech last night, and we have talked about this, is Biden put this, he did not talk about this just as straight up infrastructure as everything else. He started to actually make arguments for government and for government playing and helping solve the most pivotal and pressing problems. And these are exactly them, at least some of them, just the tip of the iceberg, but it's going to be very popular. And it's exactly what he needs to continue to try to push forward where he can make the argument because we know there's going to be zero Republican support for this. But if the public supports it, including Republicans, then we're talking about something. But with that, though, we got to we got to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about uh, this important proposal, number of other uh, things happening federally that we want to talk about. But you are listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about uh, the President's American Families Plan, which was introduced uh, Wednesday evening. Uh, to Congress and the, the whole country and how this plan is extraordinarily popular. Um, want to get more, both of more of your thoughts, but before I do, I just want to say one other thing on the negative side of what I did here last night. Um, and I don't think it's necessary and I want to talk about it. Followed up on a conversation we had last week with Tobita Chow from People's Action. And uh, that is that Biden seems to feel he needs to also put this plan uh, somehow as a battle of democracy versus autocracy, but unfortunately, he's specifically using China and anti-China. And uh, Robert, wanted to get your thoughts, and then Claire, also your thoughts, and any other thoughts you might have about this, this plan before we transition. Robert. So it is actually the old 
Theodore Roosevelt kind of model. You use nationalism uh, to, to, for domestic reform. Okay, that's what he called it, the new nationalism. And it's similar to the Cold War, where, as Derek Bell, one of the founders of critical race theory, has compellingly argued, things like Brown versus Board of Education and uh, removing Jim Crow were partly motivated by competition with Russia and the embarrassment of having a totalitarian state within the United States and the American South. And so he but he has a very conventional foreign policy Biden and we're continuing to spend massively and unnecessarily on a giant military industrial complex. And he he put this in terms of how we're, we're competing and that we're in competition with China. Now, he didn't say all of the buzzwords that Trump said, and he talked about cooperating them when they can and talking to President Xi etc., etc. But nonetheless, this is an old kind of neo-Cold War posture. And that's the one area where this administration is not reconstructed. And I understand it's not full of horrible attacks and, and, and naming of viruses after groups, whole groups of people. But nonetheless, it does create that sort of view. And furthermore, it assumes corporations in the United States and they're, uh, are somehow loyal to this country. They're happy to send all the jobs overseas so it makes for a profit. And they've done so and rigged the system to encourage it. At least Biden's going to push back more on that. But that is definitely a uh, dark cloud hanging over uh, this whole approach. Claire, do you have any further thoughts on the American Family Plan? Otherwise, I have a question for you. Uh, the last thing that I want to uh, talk about is that there had been some speculation in advance of the release of the American Family Plan that uh, there would be some prescription drug reform provisions in uh, the in the proposal, and um, that in parts some of those proposals and reforms of the way pharmaceutical companies operate would help pay for some of the things in the plan. Um, but those things were, were not in the plan. Um, the, the president did speak very um, positively and favorably in his speech last night about the Lower Drug Costs Act, which in the last um, cycle was called HR3, you might know it by that name, um, which is the bill that uh, was just reintroduced this past week. Um, and would give Medicare the authority to negotiate lower drug prices and then help extend those prices to uh, people with other types of insurance to help make uh, prescription drugs more affordable. Um, this isn't by any means um, you know, the end-all be-all of prescription drug reforms. Um, it certainly doesn't do very much to help people who don't have insurance, for example, um, but it is, it is a, a big deal. Um, and so it was, it was really good that the president um, called for this bill's passage. It would have been better if it had been included in the American Families Plan to begin with. So we're going to continue here at Citizen Action to do some advocacy around trying to get that into um, the reconciliation process or into the American Families Plan um, or, you know, at minimum, um, have a pass um, as, as standalone legislation. Um, but again, you know, all of this comes back to the, the structural reforms that we're talking about here and that, and that Robert and you have talked about a lot, things like, you know, needing to reform filibuster rules so that we can, we can pass this incredible big piece of legislation, the American Families Plan, and the Lower Drug Costs Act, uh, because as we know, it's, it's, it's going to be really hard with just um, 
51 votes. Ah, yes, the filibuster. Uh, Robert, we're going to close this topic. You have just a couple other things that you wanted to mention we're missing before we quickly move on. Yeah, take a, I want to take a step back. He avoided deliberately. He's taken on a lot. People think this is too much. This is the most we've seen in 50 years, right? Uh, and it's very impressive. We can't lose sight of that. They decided not to take on health care generally, which a healthcare advocate, some of you won't like me telling you this. Yes, it's popular in the polls, but once the blitzkrieg from industry starts and people start fearing the new system, it's very hard. And they, they recognize how hard it was for Clinton and Obama to take that on. And, and prescription drugs are caught in that. And they also skirted immigration, similar and also in, very important. And then they also, uh, he kind of did a feint around criminal justice reform by simply uh, calling, setting a deadline for them to pass the George Floyd Justice Act, which is not full structural reform, but is a start. Uh, but he didn't really take that on either. But that's not the end of it. He can't write the legislation. So 100 progressive leaders in, in, in the House and the Senate are already committed to moving on his previous commitments on health care generally, which includes Medicare expansion, at least down to 60, maybe down to 55, the prescription drug reforms Claire mentioned. Um, and so that may be in the legislation after all, because progressives, we have a large number of progressives if we back them up and they're going to push hard for its inclusion in the legislative process. And he can't very well veto things that are in his platform, but that is Biden. Well, folks, please reach out to your members of Congress or senators, urge them to support the legislation. Claire, I need to get your thoughts on a really important thing that happened uh, this week. That was uh, Senator Baldwin. Um, we have been talking about uh, vaccines and the problem with global vaccine distribution. What's going on in India is absolutely tragic and unnecessary. Uh, Senator Baldwin this week uh, joined 10 other progressive U.S. senators, uh, including Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, to approve or urge President Biden to approve a vaccine patent waiver so that we can get uh, get serious production increased uh, around the world with vaccinations. Claire, this is this is absolutely critical and momentum needs to go fast. Yeah, no, this is uh, really important, actually. And we're really uh, we're really proud to stand with Senator Baldwin in this decision. And uh, I will before the pandemic, I never heard of such a thing as the TRIPS waiver. I mean, I, don't, I still couldn't even tell you without looking at a cheat sheet what TRIPS stands for. Uh, uh, trade agreements. I, yes, I know. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> um, but the point is um, that that this is um, sort of a, a nuance of government that you may not know about until something like a global pandemic happens and you realize that we can't um, export vaccines at a rate that would help get the global pandemic under control unless we do something like patent reform um, because pharmaceutical companies in the United States of America have so much dang control over um, over these these life-saving uh, vaccines um, that they that they produce even though they're produced with uh, tax dollars American um, tax dollars uh, so so yes we really appreciate Senator Baldwin for taking the stance um, and like we've talked about on previous podcasts we know that the pandemic will not stop in America um, unless we can stop it globally um, because 
uh, th you know, there's still going to continue to be variants that happen the longer that the um, that the virus exists in other countries. Um, people won't be able to travel the way that they want to. And, and ultimately, like we just on a moral level, like we need to care. Um, Claire's totally right. Look, and that's your thing. Uh, President Biden didn't avoid offending the pharmaceutical industry, and that's a huge opponent. But this is a problem. Claire's right. First of all, we should just care about low-income folks, predominantly black and brown folks around the world, uh, suffering from this virus for no fault of their own. But in addition, we're not safe if we don't do this. The important thing to recognize is this isn't, we think these structures have always been there and it's just a problem we're trying to fix. No, this is an American problem. The United States, starting in the, in the Reagan administration with the pharma influence, made it, made it a priority to add this to the trade agreements. It didn't exist before. If this was 1980, there would not be a problem with, uh, with lower de lesser developed countries manufacturing their own versions. They got this patent protection because of their power in rigging the trade system. We led that whole fight. Oh, in fact, we pushed it over our European allies. Now, it is, uh, now we have a way to fix it. And there is still no commitment from the Biden administration because clearly they're trying not to take on yet another opponent, pharma. And they still are an administration that was heavily funded by a lot of these interests. It was, this is not Bernie Sanders. They, uh, they have been great, but they also are more, much more conflicted than a, a completely progressive president would be. Well, and we're going to have to go to a break here. But before we do, I do want to also remind our listeners uh, – on the other side, we have another U.S. senator. That would be Senator QAnon Ron Johnson. And what was he doing this week? Well, Baldwin was trying to get vaccines to the world. He was continuing to throw shade on the idea that masking helps slow the spread. It's just, it is unbelievable, right? Like it, this guy is diving in, as we have talked about before on the show, with the QAnon crowd. He's playing to that base, clearly looking towards some sort of uh, base strategy for 2020, but uh, just appalling that uh, Ron Johnson would be doing this at this critical time. But with that, we got to take a break. We're really fortunate. We're going to have a guest on the back end of this uh, break, Eric Marsh, be joining us to talk about all the marijuana reform activities that are going on locally around the state. You're listening to The Battleground, Wisconsin, where Citizen Action, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We are really fortunate to have our first guest. That is Eric Marsh. Eric is with the Wisconsin Cannabis Activist Network. Eric, it's great to have you. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for so having Eric, me. Well, we wanted to have you because y'all been super busy uh, doing local reform efforts around marijuana reform, given that we all know Governor Evers put legalization in his budget, but we know it faces an uphill battle in the legislature. So tell us about this great, a lot of these great efforts that are happening locally that you're involved in. Yeah, so the first thing that we did was we worked with Supervisor Silvia Ortiz-Velez to get the county, Milwaukee County, to lower the fine to just $1. Um, it was previously 250 to $500. And so while we were discussing with the, the county, what we really wanted to do was remove all the penalties uh, for marijuana possession. But basically working with the attorneys for the county, we were told that the lowest the county can do is a dollar, but that local municipalities are able to go further and remove all the penalties um, just due to the 
like the, the way state law handles counties and municipalities, the municipalities have have more home rule uh, ability, some some kind of legal nuances like that. I don't totally understand it, but that's what all the attorneys told us. And so now what we're pushing for now that we have the one dollar fine at the county has passed. Uh, you know, it's, it's in effect now. We are working with uh, a few alders for the city of Milwaukee, uh, Marina Dimitrievic, um, Shantia Lewis and Klee Franey to remove all the penalties for marijuana possession. And basically the new ordinance will be based off of an ordinance that Madison passed in November that allows people to possess up to an ounce of marijuana um, in their homes or in public, uh, anywhere except for school grounds and school buses essentially. Um, and even allows public consumption of cannabis anywhere that tobacco is allowed uh, if you have the permission of, of the premises owner or manager if you're in an establishment. So it'll actually even allow, you know, like smoking, smoking a joint on, on a patio or something like that if, if the, the business owner allows it. So it's, yeah, so it's a pretty neat bill that we're working on. Well, Eric, this sounds very creative way of essentially trying to functionally legalize it in certain localities if the if, the, if our state legislators are just going to be Luddites and continue to lag. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's our thinking is that, you know, it's like trying to legalize statewide. I mean, which we've been trying to do for years and years now. And we've got a lot of great state legislators, you know, pushing it. The Ever, you know, the governor's pushing it pretty hard right now, too. And, you know, we really appreciate that. But we all know what the, the Republican leadership is going to do. Um, even though we are starting to have some Republicans in the legislature come out in favor of legalization as well, but the leadership is is just totally opposed to it. And so we kind of figured we'd, we'd change our, our strategy a little bit and try to build it from the bottom up, you know, make the change where we can and, and then build up momentum and build up support and use that to, to, to push forward over the next few years, you know, across the state. This is uh, exciting legislation, Eric. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, what the response has been um, from legislators that you've talked to about this. Do you think that that folks are excited to work about on it? And then sort of, do you have any sense of like what the broader community is feeling about the penalty provision reductions that you've talked about um, or the possibility of this legislation? Yeah, I mean, everyone's everyone's excited about it. I mean, when we, when we try to pass the the one dollar fine thing, you know, we were getting the response a lot of like, "Well, just legalize it." You know, a dollar is still too much and all this. So, so what we're doing with the the city is is really exciting to people because it's you know it's it's very close to to legalization. And, you know, in a way, it can be framed as legalization because they're saying you're allowed to have you know marijuana. The cops aren't supposed to stop you or arrest you for it. Um, and we're actually working, um, I guess, MPD is, is supportive of these changes, the sheriff's department, the DA. So, you know, we've been kind of checking all the boxes. <laughs> so it's, it's been going, going pretty well. And like, we're, you know, the, the elders we're working with are, are excited about it. Um, and, you know, we're working with like a few legislators, in the, the, you know, the state too, like Lena Taylor and Sylvia Ortiz Velez. Um, you know, just, there's a lot of excitement around a lot of, a lot of support and, you know, even across the state, like we're, we're starting to get reached out from, you know, people like county supervisors and alders from cities and, and whatnot, like all across the state, like we're going to start pushing this out to, to more than just Milwaukee. So, Eric, um, thanks for doing this. And I'm really glad to see a local strategy in addition to the state strategy, because relying on rolling this particular illegitimate state legislature that holds power through partisan gerrymandering is should never be your only bet, right? So it's great you have a two-track strategy. I really appreciate that. 
you've been working on this issue a long time, right, Eric? That's my impression. Yeah. Um, how have you seen things change? Do you feel like we're at this inflection point? I mean, it's legal right in Illinois and Minnesota and Michigan. Is that right? I think it's mm-hmm. all three. And only Iowa to the west of our border states wouldn't have it. And uh, there, and even there's vast, strong public support among Republicans. But you're seeing the same problem that you see at the national level. That is, the Republican theory of elections has nothing to do with what their voters actually think. It has to do with using the instruments of government to hold power and then making their base voters hate the other side so much that it doesn't matter what their own folks do as issues, as long as they're, you know, doing terrible things to people of color, to immigrants and owning the libs. Right. And so it's really challenging this whole model, Eric, where you get public opinion, your side, then you go to and pass a bill like, you know, the old cartoon that how a bill becomes a law doesn't really pertain to this modern Republican party. That is a frustrating thing. That's why we're working at the the local level now. Um, But, yeah, I think we are at, you know, something of an, an inflection point, like a tipping point. Um, you know, I hate to say that it's inevitable because I feel like that makes people, you know, rest. Like nothing's inevitable without work. Um, but I do feel like we're we're heading in that direction. I mean, 59% of Wisconsinites support marijuana legalization, um, including even like a plurality of Republican voters at this point. Um, you know, places... Places like, you know, La Crosse County and, you know, Forest County and, you know, these places, you know, fairly rural areas are voting in favor, you know, in 2018 on the referendums of of at least medical marijuana, if not recreational marijuana in some of these places. So, I mean, it's, it's, it really does just come down to the gerrymandering, in my opinion, because, you know, like Republican voters support it, like the people support it. I mean, it's over the past few years. I mean, I definitely noticed, you know, doing events like there's a lot more support and excitement around it. And everyone has this sense of inevitability. And I, I feel like maybe to a certain extent, that sense of inevitability almost hurts us because it makes people think that oh, it's coming. I don't need to, to do it. I mean, that's what a lot of people say when we try to get them involved nowadays, too. It's like, ah, it's coming. It's coming. We don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but definitely. And we already knew they're willing to leave money on the table because. They're going to leave. They're trying to leave 1.6 billion on the table for Badger Care expansion. They've left over a billion in the past budget. So, for them, money is a no object for their political agenda, apparently, which is frustrating. I mean, do you, you feel like public opinion has really turned on this? That we're we are well beyond the reefer madness era of American history. I, public opinion has definitely turned. Um, whether we're beyond the the reefer madness, I mean, there's definitely still. It's definitely still out there. I mean, I, that's a lot of the stuff that I hear from the Republican legislators is is Reaper Madness style, <clears throat> excuse me, like attacks on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, even even lots of like Republicans, you know, um, are, are very supportive of it now. You know, we, we have a lot of people who are like Republican voters. I've talked to a lot of people who are like diehard Trump voters who are like very supportive. And they, they insist that Trump was going to legalize marijuana and the Democrats holding it back, which I don't. I don't know. I don't know how they get that, but you know, either way, I mean, it's 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 a widely supported issue across political divides. But you know, Voss and Lemayhew just don't see it for some reason. Well, Eric, look, I this this issue is moving in part because of hard organizing year after year by yourself, other activists, other folks, 
we, we talked earlier about uh, uh, President Biden's, you know, American Families Plan that he introduced and how all of these things that he's been moving, it's been moving because of activists who've laid the groundwork and set these issues up. And this is a perfect example. Uh, and this local strategy is absolutely critical. I think it continues to put Republicans in a vice because they're on the wrong side of this issue. And it's going to to make this happen faster. Uh, Eric, tell our listeners if they wanna get involved and help continue to push. And again, the other thing, we didn't even get a chance to talk about if we could actually legalize this. It's one of the biggest things we could do to start pushing back on mass incarceration. But Eric, if people wanna get involved with the Wisconsin Cannabis Action Network, how do they how do, they do that? Tell them more about it. Yeah, um, so basically we're, we're looking for volunteers, I mean, especially like all across the state, uh, you know, especially outside of Milwaukee to, to help push these local initiatives around. Um, so, yeah, if you want to get involved, uh, you can check out, check us out on, on Facebook, you know, add us on Facebook and, and send us some messages. Uh, the Wisconsin Cannabis Activist Network, um, also known as We Can, um, or you can, you know, send me an email. Uh, which is Eric, E-R-I-C, at yeswecan.org. That's yes, W-I, can, for like Wisconsin can. Um, yeah, so just yeah, well, contact us and get involved. Well, awesome, Eric. Thank you so much for, again, for all the work you have been putting in, will put in, and for joining us today on the Battleground Wisconsin. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And with that, we are going to take a break. Again, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. When we get back, our Healthcare for All co-op organizer, Karen Kirsch, will join us to talk about an exciting new project she has that's launching next Wednesday. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are really happy to have our second guest. That is Karen Kirsch. Karen is the lead organizer for the Healthcare for All Organizing Co-op here at Citizen Action. Karen, it's really great to have you today. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Karen, uh, we're having you because you have an exciting new announcement uh, that's related similar to a podcast, but that it's, you are going to be starting next Wednesday with a weekly Zoom uh, call that will be focused on talking about healthcare and particularly Medicare for all. Tell our listeners a little bit more about what you're thinking and what, why they should listen to this. Indeed I am. So every Wednesday at 7 PM, I'm going to be doing a Facebook live show. That's going to um, talk a little bit more about healthcare policy and just talk about some of the mechanics behind um, some of the things that are being proposed. And I'm going to have a special focus on single payer or Medicare for all. Oh, yeah, I'm excited about it. And here's the big, here's the big reveal. I have Dr. Physician uh, Mark Newman from La Crosse, who is going to be my co-host, and he's on the other side of the state in La Crosse. Um, him and I have have not had extensive he's conversations. Great. Yeah, so it it'll be interesting. But I don't think he knows what he got himself into agreeing to co-host with me. So uh, he shall see. This is really exciting. Uh, I am 
going to be one of your most avid uh, Facebook live watchers. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about uh, sort of what are some of the different frames and takes that you uh, are going to take to be redundant uh, on Medicare for all? So the different ways that you're thinking about how you're going to come at talking about this issue. Yeah, so um, I've been watching a lot of other people's presentations about Medicare for All or single payer, and I think there's a few things missing. One, just a simple explanation why it's actually one step beyond and one step better than the public option. So, um, of course, we'll take any progress in the direction of getting people more health care, there's lots of talk of lowering the Medicare age, right? Um, we're happy for that. We'll take that if we can get that today. But I really want to focus on exactly why it's better and let people know why it's better. Because I don't think that they really understand why it is the next step that would be better. Cool. I think that there's a lot of important things about this uh, conversation that we just sometimes don't talk about enough. And and I'm really excited that you'll have this opportunity, uh, you and Mark, to dig into these topics. I mean, I'm thinking about things like, you know, why single payer uh, Medicare for all type plans are the best type of uh, way to attack health equity and systemic uh, racism and inequalities in healthcare, right? I mean, there's just so many different ways that uh, that Medicare for all will will help our society. Yes, agreed. And I just read um, a finding that people uh, after the pandemic, people are thinking differently. They've noticed that there's a lot of inequality um, just in the way they were treated. So I think this is a real opportunity um, for people to find out exactly um, the structural inequality that we have in our healthcare system. And I'm sure once they know more, they'll just be more confident in being behind it. So that's kind of my aim. And the good news is at the end of the show, if, if you register to actually watch it in webinar mode, of course you can watch it on Facebook Live. I'll be happy to have you. But if you register to watch it in Facebook mode, we're going to let you into the green room at the end of the show and you can ask questions of Mark and I, or if you have a healthcare story that you want to tell me, um, I might feature you on the show to tell me your healthcare story of how you were burned by our healthcare system. So I really want to encourage people to register for the show and then you can be in that green green room with us after the show and we can have some conversations too. And we will not be Facebook living the green room, by the way, that'll be a little more private. So Karen, this is great. Um, and I'm glad to hear you're going to focus on the why of Medicare for all, because it's kind of become just a progressive tagline with people not thinking about, you know, what it means. I, I'd also encourage you to, uh, to think about what it doesn't mean, because it's really just about the coverage part. It's not about, though it can affect the other parts, it's not about the pharmaceutical industry per se. It's not about hospitals, which are a giant industry now. They're nonprofit and name only. And they're a big part of this system, too, though certainly Medicare for All gives you more leverage against those parts of the system. But nonetheless, um, so we, we're not even thinking about 
where it fits in. It's not as far as Great Britain, which is the government employs the doctors, uh, et cetera, right? And the hospitals are, are government hospitals. So you kind of wonder why the American left doesn't have further aspirations. But beyond that, I and by the way, the transformative thing, Karen, I, I know you and I agree is right now people don't have the same form of payment. And a lot of people have no form of payment. If you want to know why they build giant hospitals out in the suburbs and abandon the cities where people really need health care, it's because that's where the private payers are with the highest reimbursement rates. Again, to non uh, to, to nonprofit name only for those alleged charities that, that, that call themselves that, the hospitals. But the point being, this gives equality. Everyone has the same form of payment, right? And then you can use that to make sure the folks who need the most care and, and access are getting it and really focus in on people who are facing inequalities, right? People in rural areas, uh, uh, people of color in urban areas that are being abandoned and disinvested in, and also have a lot of health conditions that come from structural racism, uh, let's face it. But I want to ask you, I was glad to hear, and I don't know if your co-host will agree, there really is a divide in the healthcare movement between Medicare for all people that, for some reason, think that it's a sellout if you don't pass it all in one bill, like anything that dramatic has ever happened in American history in one bill, and somehow see things like Medicare expansion uh, as a step in the wrong direction. That's quite in contrast to what we're seeing in Washington, because with President Biden, we talked about it in the first two segments deciding not to take on the healthcare issue and the healthcare industry and his American family plan, a uh, hundred progressive Democrats in the House and the Senate have said they're going to push for to put healthcare in the American family plan and that Congress gets to write the actual bill, not the president. And they're going to include lowering the Medicare age to at least 60, maybe to 55. It seems to me that that's a huge step towards Medicare for all. And I, I don't know what you think. I do not understand for the life of me why people want to take an all or nothing proposition where the all is simply not politically possible right now, not even remotely. Well, exactly, Robert. That, I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm doing this, because I, I want to bring more people on board. We simply do not have enough people that know about it, that are taking action, and that are actually act actively involved in promoting this. So we need to build more, more people. We need to have more people on board, and we need to be talking about it more. And I think um, we've seen Senator Sanders talk about lowering the Medicare age himself. So he has basically signaled that he thinks that it's a good step in the right direction. So um, I like to, and this is maybe apropos, since we just had Eric on the podcast, I like to point out to people there were a lot of states that started off with medical marijuana, weren't they? They took that first step and then doctors got tired of being the gatekeepers and then they moved to uh, having full legalization in those states. Like perhaps that's an example of something where once we see something, how well it's working, the public doesn't disagree anymore. There's less kickback. And then we move to having broader benefits and rights. Right. Because if you do that, then 54-year-olds start saying, gosh, it works so well. 
for 55-year-olds, why don't I get it? And so on down the line. And it just reduces the political difficulty of the lift because you're, you're imagine it like lowering the weights on the barbell, right? You've already done part of the weight, so you don't need to lift as much weight at one time. Plus, I think you're right. We don't have enough of a movement to do it. We're kidding ourselves if we think we do. And the rational argument for it is not enough in American politics. It, it never has been, but it's especially not now. So it'll be interesting to see. I assume you're a real organizer, Karen, that part of the goal here is to listen to uh, people or activists who want to be activists, not just to lecture them, that, that organizing is about listening, right, and, uh, and, and learning from each other. Yes, for sure. You know, I'm really looking for people and I'm looking for people to tell me their stories. I want to hear, really hear what they're struggling with. I think that really gets to the heart of the matter. It helps communicate to other people exactly what is going on with their neighbors. They, people don't want to see their neighbors suffering. They want their neighbors being taken care of. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for more people that are involved. Well, Karen, I think this thing's going to be a huge success. I think it's at a critical time. This is going to be a hot discussion during the Biden administration about reform. Um, and so really, really thrilled you were able to take the time to join us uh, today to tell our listeners about it. Thank you, Karen. Yes, thank you for having me, everyone. Awesome, folks. Check it out next Wednesday night. You got to be there, 7 p.m. With that, though, we got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. It's been a great show. want to thank Karen Kirsch for joining us. Also, of course, Eric Marsh for joining us. We have to wrap it up, but also thank you, Brian Wilbridge, our producer, who makes the show happen every week. He's been doing it great throughout this uh, pandemic. But we will see you next week at the Battleground Wisconsin.